Welcome back to the LDA Podcast, a podcast created by the Learning Disabilities Association of America. This series is dedicated to improving the lives and education of all learners. In today's episode, we talk with educational consultant Dr. Cynthia Stadel about the school-to-prison pipeline and what schools and communities can do to end it. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Dr. Cynthia Stadel. She's an educational consultant out of Portland, Oregon. She's worked in federally funded literacy and GED programs for adults on probation and parole. She's also worked for the Multnomah County Department of Community Justice for 14 years and has also been working as a grant writer and consultant for nonprofits who assist folks in reentering the community following incarceration. Currently, she works for the Northeast Portland Prison and Literacy Instruction. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Stadel. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So can you tell us what is the school to prison pipeline? Okay, basically it, it um, the school to prison pipeline is a, a, a term coined by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And it looks at that pathway from uh, kids who have behavior issues in the school systems, they drop out and then they end up in, in uh, incarcerated. I have some, some stats on that. Um, mm-hmm. We know that on any given day in the United States, more than 2 million people are uh, held in prisons and jails and more than 100,000 juveniles are held in custody. And wow. what we know, yes, is that risk of incarceration does not impact all populations equally. Um, we know that a disproportionate number of those incarcerated are people of color. But um, today I want to draw attention to another overrepresented group, and those are folks with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so um, a snapshot, and this speaks to your, your question about that school-to-prison pipeline, um, students with disabilities are more than twice as likely to receive out-of-school suspension than wow. students without disabilities. And those who are suspended are more likely to drop out. So. Um, Uh, We saw from the National uh, Longitudinal Study done several years ago that the dropout rate for youth with learning disabilities is higher than that of the general population of youth. Um, And dropping out uh, puts youth at risk for incarceration. So you've got 31% of those dropping out um, uh, were arrested uh, compared with only 8% of those youth who stay in school. But when you look deeper, those who dropped out of school and who had learning disabilities were arrested at a rate of nearly 45%. Wow. So that's your school to prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. So you have kids who are in school. I, uh, I've watched, um, uh, done functional behavioral analyses, watched kids, you know, where are they having difficulty? Where are they sent to the principal? You know, they're having difficulty in reading or math, stuff like that, and they can't get the, the subject matter, they begin acting out. They're sent to the principal's office, and then it flows from there. They're suspended, and, and you start having those kinds of um, uh, encounters with law enforcement. So it sounds like they struggle academically, and they don't want the, the focus on them to be on their academic struggles, so tend to act out, and then that leads to um, discipline issues, which then right. kind of just right. perpetuates into... Exactly, exactly. And if you have... Um, uh, a school that isn't sensitive to what's going on with the individual child mm-hmm. and not intervening appropriately and falls back on suspensions, you're setting them up for entry into another system. 
It's crazy. The criminal justice system, yeah. yeah. It is crazy. It is crazy. So how, how do we even go about helping schools or youth in general um, respond to this phenomenon? I, I really think that um, uh, school culture is critical. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, if you have proactive school administrators who set a framework um, for a positive school culture, that that goes a long way, mm-hmm. you know, in addressing, you know, you could address about 80% of the behavior issues if you frame a positive culture, you know, where where people are um, treated to uh, to be safe, or I mean, the, the expectations are that um, students and faculty um, are safe, they're respectful, and they're responsible, and then that takes care of a, a huge uh, majority of behavior issues. And then you can zero in on kids who are having specific issues, you know, but that narrows it from the entire school having problems to a, a, a smaller band. Mm-hmm. And then you can deal with those and provide the appropriate evaluations and then accommodations. Um, but it, but it, I'm um, very much aware that it's frequently a, a culture issue. And I see that also in the prisons. You know, where if you've got a culture that is respectful, um, you can do much more, you know, than one that is punitive. So as a society, I guess, we talked about the school system, but school doesn't happen during the summer, only happens for six and a half hours a day. What should the community or families be doing to, as preventative strategies before students become involved in the juvenile justice system or... Right. Well, certainly. Um, so, so supporting families um, with uh, uh, tutoring programs and that kind of thing, but making those available not just to to parents who can afford them, mm-hmm. but to low income folks. And so, one of the things I see in in the prison system is you've got um, folks. I work with folks who have undiagnosed disabilities frequently, and. It's easy for me with uh, folks on learning disabilities to, to look at that. But really, you've got a lot of comorbidity um, disorders going on. So folks have problems with um, substance abuse, mental health issues. Um, in the prison system, we see a lot of head injury, reported self-reported head injury, multiple um, issues, and trauma, which is exacerbated then by the prison system itself. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with parents who have... Um, a lot of issues we haven't been addressed. And frequently, as I said, they're parents, they have children too. Mm-hmm. So part of that is um, addressing the needs of the adults, mm-hmm. their own reading and literacy needs. So they're taking care of that small child within themselves that wasn't um, uh, responded to perhaps, so that they in turn then can advocate for their children. And um, But beyond that, um, making programming available through the summer so that kids who need assistance and can't afford the private tutors can get that help. And frequently in Portland, it might be working with um, a uh, a college or university that has a teacher training program that can provide training to um, incoming uh, teachers who can provide that training during the summer. So it sounds like this might even be an equity issue. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Thank you for bringing that up. So 
for students that are already involved in the juvenile justice system, uh -huh. um, what are prisons doing to help them in their areas of struggle so that they don't become adults in the right in the system? In the system, yeah. Um, you know, I'm not as familiar with with the juvenile justice system. I've mm -hmm. been more uh, engaged with the adult system. Yeah, but. Um, uh, so I can't really speak to that. Okay. Uh, I know that um, in Multnomah County, we had a, a read, uh, the introduction of a READ 180 program that was addressing kids with uh, adolescents with literacy issues. Um, but beyond that, I can't, I can't really say. Um, I've, uh, yeah, I've worked more with the adults. And what I saw in Portland, we have in Oregon, um, 14 prisons and uh, one in Northeast Portland that um, incarcerates men releasing to the Portland metropolitan area. And that prison had uh, has um, a GED program, which one instructor from uh, Portland Community College who coordinates that. And again, it's a lot of computer assisted learning supplemented by um, inmates who are tutors. That works for um, inmates who are reading at a ninth grade level or above. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work for those who are um, reading at lower levels. So um, that's where uh, uh, Multnomah County Library um, instituted an outreach program and I was able to work with them. And, and so I'm now working with um, inmates who are functioning below that eighth grade level. But so you asked, you know, what, what can you do? And I'm, I'm um, uh, a big pro proponent of um, structured literacy programs. Mm -hmm. And when I work with Multnomah County and was hired to start a literacy um, and GED program years ago, uh, I found that um, it was, uh, uh, and we also, the, the grant that funded that program provided for computer assisted learning. Mm -hmm. So that's where we started. But again, we saw that wasn't addressing the needs of really low-level readers. We had a volunteer come in who was trained in Massachusetts as an Orton-Gillingham person. And she was willing and equipped to work with very low-level readers, adults. Mm -hmm. And so um, that really uh, uh, propelled me then to get Orton-Gillingham training and eventually moved to incorporating uh, Wilson curricula within that learning center. So I carry that experience with me and, and saw lots of positive effects from that. So when working with the adults um, that are in prison uh -huh. and they're getting this literacy instruction, does it change um, their social, emotional well-being, their confidence? Like, what are they, I mean, they're gaining literacy right. skills, but what else are they gaining? Well, that is huge in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and again, what we've started with the, uh, with this prison project and it's a pilot and it's mm -hmm. recent. We just started um, back in September. So mm -hmm. so uh, recruiting folks and at first folks were, um, men incarcerated were very uh, unwilling to uh, disclose that they had learning issues, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but we were using a, a cost as assessments within that um, intake process and we could see really low cost of scores. We were pulling those in doing some screening and then I began working with them one-on-one -on -one and then um, experimenting with um, Wilson's uh, Tier 2 intervention program, the, the Just Words curriculum, and started to get some really positive response. What I saw 
was that um, uh, some of the inmates that were working um, also in uh, treatment programs, a treatment component, mm -hmm. were saying that they could um, really uh, grasp the curriculum much better. So you saw impacts, positive impacts on their um, uh, on their treatment, and um, so that was positive. But the other piece that really struck struck me was, you know, grown adults literally weeping and saying, "I wish I had had this when I was younger." And these are folks that had dropped out of school mm -hmm. at eighth grade or or um, a little bit later. So they they recognized that their education was cut short because they couldn't Correct. read. Um, exactly. And this led right. them from one place to another and exactly. where they are now. Exactly. Exactly. They talked about, you know, um, going for the street, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and using and, and uh, yeah, getting involved in a criminal lifestyle that left them incarcerated or led to incarceration. So many of the people that you work with, will their prison sentences be up soon? And what did they feel like they could do um, after being released now that they have some skills. Right. Well, and so that's a concern I have. What we know is that 95% of the folks who are incarcerated will be released to their communities. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I think it's really important that there is a bridge back into the community where they continue to get that support. And, um, and so that's the re-entry work. Yeah. And so uh, that needs to be really bootstrapped throughout the country. The Department of Labor right now has funded a number of programs uh, that focus on um, equipping uh, either work source centers or nonprofits non uh, to better accommodate folks coming back into the community. And a lot more of that needs to be done mm -hmm. because it's not just um, the reading, obviously. Yeah. It's the um, uh, access to, um, to the workforce. Mm -hmm. So for those that are listening, what can we as citizens do to help support this integration or to, to, pre to even do preventative measures before juvenile ju justice right. um, beca becomes the child's only option and uh, leads to incarceration? So what could we as informed citizens do? Well, part of it um, is realizing that there isn't just one answer. Mm -hmm. It has to be, it, it's complex and the issues are, uh, of uh, crime and our whole incarceration system are complex. So, you know, it really starts with each of us and, uh, and our own willingness to, to grow and, and be lifelong learners mm -hmm. and extend that to our children and then extend that to our neighbors working with our schools and making certain that our schools are inclusive and that the programs that are offered in our school buildings uh, and the culture that we create there is welcoming and supportive of all students. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's one piece. Uh, then another piece is as, as folks get um, engaged in the criminal justice system and recognizing that that engagement, you know, is part of a community's desire for safety, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, so we wanna create safe communities, but then being willing to ask the questions, you know, what's going on with this individual? What kinds of supports can we provide this this individual to turn this life around? Mm -hmm. Again, recognizing that they're going to be coming back into our communities. Mm -hmm. When people come back, you, that whole issue of uh, uh, background checks and that exclude people from employment. So we've said, okay, you've done your time, but then you come back in 
to the community, we have another barrier. Exactly. So in Oregon, there's a big movement to so-called ban the box, the box that says you have a criminal history. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so that you ban that box and you get individuals and you're asking them, are you qualified to do the job we want you to do? And you don't ask at the front end, you know, do you have a criminal history? Because that screens people out right from the beginning. Exactly. Exactly. And as an employer, what you want is folks who can do the job. And then yes, down the the road, you can, um, you know, are there risks? Mm -hmm. Uh, But, um, but that's down the road. And we work with employers who are very open you know, to uh, working with folks who have criminal histories, because the reality is so many of us have family members who are in the system mm-hmm. and we can identify. Yep. And then getting rid of the box eliminates bias right from the beginning yep. because Correct. there's probably a whole lot of bias towards this right. population. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So thank you for your time today, Cynthia. You have given us a wealth of information and a lot to think about in terms of what we do in society and what we what we could be doing to really create that inclusive and supportive society you talked about. Well, you know what? Um, I was really impressed with the, the speaker here at the LEA conference where mm-hmm. we are and uh, uh, John King, and he was talking about um, the need to see the humanity of each of and I think that's just really, really critical. Mm-hmm. And then um, we need to build bridges of support, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And that was another theme in his talk, and I think that's really critical. All of us need those bridges of support. Yep, all of us need to be able to network and, exactly. and not burn bridges and, exactly. feel like, and feel like nobody burned a bridge for us, exactly. which I'm sure many of these right. incarcerated right. individuals feel. And what we know is that when we burn bridges, we need to go back and repair them. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't abandon them. Yep. Thank you for your time, Cynthia. I appreciate this conversation. Uh, Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the LDA podcast. This podcast is made possible by the Learning Disabilities Foundation of America. The music from today's episode includes Little Idea by Scott Holmes. In our next episode... We talk about parenting strategies for children with learning disabilities with John Wilson, Executive Director at SOAR. For more resources from LDA, visit ldaamerica.org.